0: This is the passage that Robert talked on last week with the Ethiopian eunuch. And in that section, if you remember, if you didn't, if you weren't here, you can go listen to it. But in that section of scripture, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading a portion of this Isaiah 53. And he asks a very important question to Philip. He says, Philip, who's, who is he talking about here in Isaiah 53? Is he talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? And then Luke tells us that Philip said that Philip, from that passage, preached to him the good news of Jesus Christ. to it at the end, the Ethiopian eunuch says, "Why should I not pledge allegiance to this great Savior?" What was it that Philip believed as an interpretation about Isaiah 53 that helped the eunuch see he ought to see someone else in that passage not? Isaiah and maybe not even himself, and so i 've titled this sermon: "Where do you find yourself? How you examine and interpret Scripture and where you see yourself in scripture will be how you see yourself in the world and i 'll explain why I say that in a second. So let me give you maybe a a more uh, simple way to see what i 'm talking about before we actually hit. Isaiah 53, and I'm going to use maybe the most famous and I believe the most misinterpreted story in the Bible, which is the story of David and Goliath. So think about this, where do you find yourself in the story of David and Goliath? The story's simple, we all know it, right? David uh, is a uh, shepherd boy. Uh, he's a part of the Israelite nation. The Israelites have gone to war against the Philistines, a ruthless and oppressive people with uh, great warriors. And on this particular day, they're, they're on the battlefield, and out comes the most prolific warrior, a giant, literally, of a man, Goliath. And he stands in the middle of the battlefield and is taunting God and his people in the armies of Israel. And Israel is terrified. They are cowered in the back, hiding in the mountains, afraid of this giant. And here comes David, 14 year old shepherd boy, with some lunch for his brothers who were on the front lines. And he says, Hey, what are you guys doing? The guy's taunting your God and his promises, and he's taunting you. Go kill him. And they're like, We can't, he's too big. David says, Well, I'll do it. He takes his slingshot, he takes his stones. He slings the slingshot, hits the giant in the forehead. The giant falls out. David cuts his head off, holds the head up, sitting victory for Israel. Everybody knows that story. Who are you in that story? The most popular interpretation if I ask that is, well, I sure hope I'm David. In fact, I asked one of my friends that this weekend, uh, this week about this. And he said, I sure hope I'm David. So, if you are to see yourself as David, and you're faced with a giant in your life, you better trust God, take up your weapon, go out courageously, defeat the enemy, yourself, with God's help, maybe. That's how the typical interpretation goes. Now, this interpretation is very fitting for the strong and mighty among us. In fact, with this sort of thinking, small football teams in rural Georgia can face the giants against the crosstown rival, Big School, and win the big game. With this interpretation, companies and even nations have been built by sheer willpower, asking for God's help, yes, increasing in strength, power, wealth, and skill. But what happens to the weak and powerless among us? What happens when you don't have any skill to sling a slingshot? And what if all your efforts fail? Or what if you're so wounded and oppressed you don't have the power or strength or even desire to go face the giants? Does this passage not apply to you? Is this simple answer, is the simple answer, get out of your pity party, take some personal responsibility, get up and go fight? Can you see the dilemma? If you insert yourself as David in this passage, then your salvation, your ability to fight evil in this world is solely on your shoulders. You better get believing You better get preparing your slingshot. You better get some education, some money, some skill, so that you can go and defeat the giants. Or, I better just give up. I'm not strong enough. I'm not good enough. I don't have a good slingshot. I don't even have a hold a slingshot. I'm scared. I'm afraid. I have no hope. I can't even defeat my own giants. Friends, this is not the interpretation of this passage. It's not. You are not to see yourself as David. The correct interpretation is you are to see yourself as Israel, cowering in the background, hiding from the enemies, afraid of the magnitude of this giant in front of you. And God sends a deliverer on your behalf. He sends the most unlikely of heroes to fight for you. The pressure of deliverance is solely on David in that story, not you. You and I, no matter where we come from or what we've done, need a deliverer to step in on our behalf. If you have this interpretation of Scripture, then you will have this interpretation about life as you live it. A few weeks ago in a speech given during primetime television, one of the leaders of our nation was trying to quote Hebrews 12 which says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. But this leader, instead of saying, looking to Jesus, inserted old glory, a reference to our flag. He was saying to us, look to old glory for your strength and power. Do you see how easy it is to normalize the interpretation that you can be David and you can fight your enemies? Friends, hear me clearly. The enemy that we are facing is too powerful. You're not strong enough. Your bank account is not strong enough. Your education is not strong enough. Your life and parenting skills are not good enough. Your social media posts are not strong enough. Your technology filters and accountability are not strong enough. Your guns are not strong enough. And yes, even your nation is not strong enough to defeat this enemy. There is only one who can defeat this, our greatest enemy. Now, When I say this, some of you inwardly go, yes, this is such good news. I constantly feel this inadequacy in the face of my enemy. Praise God that he has sent a deliverer out for me. But sadly, some of us inwardly begin to argue and say, but so what are you saying? I shouldn't have good life skills. I shouldn't own guns. I shouldn't love my country. No, the good news to you is they'll fail you. Every one of those will fail you in the face of this enemy. There is one who will not fail you, and it's Jesus the Christ. Now, with that lens, that's how all Scripture is to be interpreted. That's the lens that Philip said, hey, eunuch, he's not talking about himself. He's talking about someone else. And from that passage preached Jesus all the way through. We call it the scarlet thread of Scripture. In every passage, the interpretation is Jesus. Where do we see Jesus? So let's look at where we see Jesus in Isaiah 53. If you're an outline taker, here's what I'm asking. Who is this deliverer in Isaiah 53? Who has he delivered and how did he do it? And what did his deliverance accomplish? Okay, so let's first, verse 1 through 3. You can, you can follow along in your bulletin. Who is this deliverer? Notice who he is. Who has believed what is heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That's not a very attractive description of a of a hero. A deliverer. He grew up in a dry place. Uh, He's a a, a root of someone else, right? And the the prophets would tell us. Isaiah himself would spend a lot of time talking about this deliverer being the root of David. Someone would come from David. Uh, In fact, David, who faced Goliath, needed a a deliverer. And the, the Hebrews would define that for us. But this deliverer here says he had no form or majesty that we should want. He's not the type of person that you would notice. In fact, he was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. Men hid their faces from him. The vision that Isaiah gives of our deliverer is not one that would neatly fit into the superhero paradigm. Two weeks ago, Chadwick Bozeman, the actor who played uh, Jackie Robinson and the Black Panther, passed away at the age of 43. A tragic death in many regards, but mostly because he gave a whole generation of black men and women hope because of what he was able to do on and off the screen. I really encourage you to go read about his legacy. It's amazing. But he was the Black Panther. And as with all the other Marvel superheroes, he had amazing superpowers. People were awed by them. People revered and esteemed these superheroes on the screen and off the screen. However... Jesus had superpowers much greater than any Marvel Captain America or Iron Man or Black Panther, yet he was not viewed as a hero. He was despised. He was rejected. However, much like the superheroes in movies, Jesus did deliver and rescue his people ultimately. So let's look at who he delivered and how he did it. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who did he deliver? First, he says, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Are you here this morning with griefs, sorrows, afflictions, issues? This not-so-attractive superhero carries them. This past week, this statement by Isaiah has been exceptionally healing for me. On Monday, I received some really bad news about my biological father. He's dying. In fact, I just learned yesterday that he's been moved to an assisted care facility with dementia, along with a host of other physical issues and significant financial troubles. Many of you don't know my story. Some of you do. But the long of the short is I've been estranged from my father for 30 years. My father is a criminal, a felon, a narcissist, and I have not spoken to him since 1997. The grief I carry that the man that has been practically dead to me for 35 years now is actually dying. And he's dying alone, by himself. The results of his narcissism. This is too much for me to process. This is too much grief. This is too much sorrow. This is too much anger. This is too much of all the emotions. And this passage says, this not-so-great hero carries my griefs and my sorrows. He carries them. I don't carry them. I'm not David. I can't carry this load. He carries it. But not only does he carry the load of victims, people who have been victimized by the world and sinful behaviors of others, look at what he says next. He also bears the sins of villains like myself, I'm continually perpetrating the evil in the world. I continue to sin. I continue to violate God's, trans, God's laws and transgress his, his character. This verse says that he was bruised for my iniquities. He was crushed for my sins. The punishment that brought Will Witherington peace was upon him. By his wounds, I am healed. So yes, I may have been wounded by my father and others and Jesus carries those burdens, but I am also wounding and harming myself and others and Jesus takes care of those sins too. And he sums it up in verse (laughs) 6. We all, like sheep, wounded, helpless, frail, have gone astray. We've wandered from the shepherd of our soul, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, that's the good news that the eunuch heard and said, sign me up for that allegiance. He's going to carry my griefs and my sorrows, and he's going to take away my sins. And Philip said, yeah, let me tell you about him. Now, look at verse 7. How did he do this? We We know the end of the story, but Isaiah was predicting it hundreds of years before. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there is no deceit in his lips, it was the will of God to crush him and put him to grief. How did this superhero bear your burdens, uh, atone for your sins? By himself being afflicted. We know he died on the cross. But friend, he did this for you. He did this to satisfy divine justice. The wrath of God was poured out on him, not on you. He fully embraced the will of the Lord. Now, finally, the last question what did his deliverance accomplish? Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, he was put to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he will see his offspring. He he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many... He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercessory, intercession for transgressors. The bottom line summary of this is that this unimpressive deliverer who through his own affliction and suffering bears the sin and suffering of all his people now is the consummate victor. He will see his offspring. His days will be prolonged. He will make many accounted righteous. He makes intercession. Do you know what all this implies? This sacrificial lamb will not stay dead. He will rise again. Can a dead man see his offspring? No. Can a dead man prolong his days? No. Does a dead judge account others righteous? No. Can a dead man make intercession for people? No. Friends, not only did this man of sorrows, who was acquainted with grief, suffer the darkness of sin through death on a cross, but he rose from the grave, conquering all of our enemies. The point? Sin, death, trauma, hurt, dysfunction, pain are not the end or the sum of all things. Life is. Life. I came to give you life. Life to the fullest. This is the message that Philip told the Ethiopian eunuch. This is why Isaiah is not talking about himself, but of someone else. This is why you and I should never see ourselves in the place of David fighting giants. This is why you and I should forever find ourselves Fully aligning with Jesus, the man of sorrows. Now, I said at the beginning that this interpretation of Scripture, seeing Jesus, will affect how you live today. Listen to this quote. Everybody knows that God punishes bad people and rewards good people. It's his job. But the gospel disagrees. The gospel says that God justifies the ungodly. What does that mean? It means that God declares guilty people innocent. It means that God treats bad people as if they were good people. That goes beyond the power of miracle. It's scandal. Are you open to the mega miracle arch scandal of the gospel? What would it look like? To be the recipients of this scandalous salvation and to bend it out to a hurting world. What would that look like? Ah, alas, we have a New Testament passage that Joe Sharp read that tells us exactly what that would look like. You read the story. Here comes a woman caught in adultery, horrific behavior. She's cheating on her husband, and the law made provisions. You should stone such a woman. So here come the righteous Pharisees, and they say to him, Jesus, what are you gonna do with this woman? The test of all tests, will this new rabbi, this prophet of Nazareth, will he uphold the law of Moses? So he begins to draw in the dirt with his hand, and he asks a simple question. You're right, it does say that, guys. And so whichever one of you is not guilty of breaking the law, you can go ahead and throw the first stone. Yikes. Can you just imagine that scene of them back and forth going, I'm not throwing first, you throw first. I'm not throwing first, you throw first. And it says, starting with the oldest, they walked away. And now he's left with this capital A adulterer whose griefs and sorrows are too great to bear. And in a tremendous irony the one who was sinless and had just said anybody who doesn't have sin throw a rock doesn't throw a rock at her but says woman where are your condemners they're not here sir neither do i condemn you go and sin no more he didn't throw a rock at her he didn't yell about her behavior he just loved her i know it's complicated it's scandalous But what if that was our hearts? What if we looked at the sins of our kids, of our families, of the culture, and we didn't throw rocks, we gave mercy? What if? So where do you find yourself? I've thought for years about this idea of, of, of what we commonly call self-righteousness, right? So when you insert yourself as David in the story of David and Goliath, that's self-righteousness, right? You, you can save yourself. But I've always thought, but, it, but that woman who is about to be stoned also had a form of self-righteousness and she thought by this horrific behavior running to all these men, she could save herself from the pain and sorrow of her loneliness or her sexual perversion or whatever it was. So this, the coin of self-righteousness is two-sided. On one side, you have this, I can do it. I'm strong. I don't need help. God can give me some prayer things and a devotional. I might need his assistance through this. But for the most part, I can handle it. And therefore, I look at the world. The problem with the world is people just aren't taking personal responsibility. If everybody just took personal responsibility, we'd all be fine. The other side of the coin is also self-righteous. says, I'm not worthy to come to Jesus. I'm way too dirty. I'll just sit here and wallow in my unworthiness. Perhaps if I make myself miserable, then I'll feel better about how bad I am. Several years ago, I was sharing the gospel on one of our campuses with a young man, and we were talking about coming to Jesus, and he said to me, he said, listen, I would love to come to Jesus, but I've got some things in my life I've got to get straight first. So I said to him, I said, hey man, did you take a shower this morning? And he said, yeah, I took a shower. I said, did you first get in the bathtub before you got in the shower? He was like, well, no, that'd be stupid. Why? I said, is it because the shower's purpose is to wash me? I said, that's Jesus. Don't get in some other bathtub of your own righteousness and clean your life up and then come to Jesus. Just go to Jesus. He will wash you, He will bear your burdens. Stop trying to save yourself. So, where do you find yourself? Perhaps you see yourself as leaning towards, or maybe squarely in, I can do it myself. I've got enough skill, I've got enough education, I've got enough money, I've got enough personal responsibility, I've got enough personal discipline, I can do this. Friend, look at the cross. Jesus had to die for you. He had to die for you. There was no escaping the cross. Your enemy is too great. So if you find yourself squarely in the I can do it category, just remember Jesus died for you. By his wounds, you are healed. But if you find yourself as the other one, trying to sacrifice yourself, trying to make your life as miserable as possible because you know how miserable you are and you have been so beat down, so afflicted, friend, the response is the same to you. Look at the cross. Jesus died for you. Stop trying to kill yourself. Stop trying to be afflicted yourself. He took on your affliction. So the answer for both self-righteous coin holders is the same as the whole scriptures. It's Jesus. It's his afflictions. It's his righteousness. So as the writer of Revelation, Jesus' best friend, John, would say, he is the alpha, he is the omega. From beginning to end, from first to last, it is about him. And so my prayer for me in these days, these are hard days for me, I know these are hard days for you. That we would look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is presently sitting at the right hand, making intercessor for you. Let's pray. Oh God, I know many of my friends here bear lots of burdens. They are too great for us to carry, but you have clearly showed us from your word that you bear our griefs and our burdens. So I ask through your spirit right now that you would take away the burdens of men and women, boys and girls in this room and let them know that they are accounted righteous by you. And Lord, I do pray that this church would be known as a church that sees the sin and darkness of this world and is merciful. Help us be that kind of people. The same mercy and grace that was shown to us, help us to bend it out to all people in our city. We can't do that on our own. We need your help, Jesus. So we surrender to you. Only Christ. Only Christ. His name we pray. Amen.